Great to be with you today. My name is Dave. I'm the pastor here, and I want to welcome you to West Winds. Thanks, everybody, for joining us online. In um, about 4 BC, Jesus of Nazareth was born to humble parents in a tiny little town of about 400 people. And uh, something else happened shortly thereafter. It was the death of Herod the Great, a very um, evil historical person. And when, when Herod died... All of the region of Judea over which he was tetrarch or, or, or which he was king was thrown into crazy amounts of turmoil. Because anytime there's a change in power, people get hungry for the power that's now up for grabs. So Herod's different sons began competing with one another. There were all kinds of different factions within Judaism that began competing with one another. Enough that finally the Roman government had to get involved. And they sent three to four legions of Roman soldiers into Nazareth, which again is a, a tiny, tiny, tiny little town, and absolutely decimated the population there. Not just there, all throughout the region of Judea. I mean, they just went in and they wanted to make sure that they were not going to have to put up with any more nonsense anytime soon. So they did what they always do in times of political unrest and upheaval, and they killed people. They raped women and children. They killed all the young men of fighting age. They crippled all the elderly men who were still able to hold a sword or cause problems. They put it down fiercely and finally. And I imagine, and this is just conjecture, I mean, it's historically sponsored conjecture, but it's just conjecture. I wonder what all those Jewish people were thinking about God on the day the Romans came. Like if your whole identity is as a nation under God, if everything that you know about your ethnicity, your religion, your, your, your family history, your heritage, if everything that you believe is defined by God and a right relationship with God, then what kind of God do you serve who doesn't show up and help when your hometown is getting absolutely destroyed. Where's God when you need him? Where's God when you want him? Where's God in the middle of the Holocaust? Race riots. Uprest. Divorce. Bankruptcy. Because he, he doesn't really show up in the way that you hope. Well, at least he didn't for them, not back then. And I imagine that Jesus grew up in this environment of people telling stories about the day the Romans came. I imagine his cousin, John the Baptist, grew up in this environment of wondering where God was on the day the Romans came. And, and I imagine that by the time Jesus reaches adulthood, the whole Jewish community is feeling tired, angry, scared, because it could happen again, and poor, tired, angry, scared, and poor. Hey, welcome to church, everybody. We thought we'd start out on a happy note. Today we begin our series on Advent, which is the term that we refer to the Christmas season, but the word Advent li literally means waiting, waiting. 
And if Advent is the Christmas season, and if the first Christmas season surrounds the birth of Jesus, I wonder what were the people alive then? What were they waiting for, these these tired and angry, scared and poor people? What were they waiting for? Now, you and I probably think they were waiting for a Messiah. I mean, if you've been around church for a little while, heck, if you've been alive in America for a little while, you've probably heard the term Messiah, and you probably have this Christian understanding, a healthy understanding that the Messiah is Jesus Christ, born in in Nazareth, that the Messiah is Jesus who was God-made flesh. God became like us, that we might become like God. I mean, this is good biblical theology. The problem is, is I don't think they then were waiting for God like that. They didn't think that their Savior was going to be God. Not, not like that. They had no expectation that, that God would become a human being. God hadn't done that before. It was a new trick. And you remember Jesus way later on, when he's walking around telling people who he is, and he starts making these bold, audacious claims that he and his heavenly father are one? That if you want to know God, you got to know him? That the only way to get to God is through him? Remember how people reacted to that? They were like, oh, this is fantastic news. High five, we love you. No, they try to kill him for it. His own followers were too obtuse to fully grasp what he was saying, and the people who did fully understand what he was saying castigated him. Tried to lynch him, kicked him out of the temple, tried to kill him, and eventually succeeded. So, so nobody back then was waiting for God made flesh. So, so if that's not what they were waiting for, what, what were they waiting for? And when Jesus showed up to give them what they needed... Isn't it funny to realize that he was a disappointment? I think God often disappoints us, sometimes through the very means that God is saving us. And if you look at all the disappointments in your life right now, and just imagine that maybe the things you're disappointed in are the very vehicle through which God is going to heal you and restore you and bless you, that there might be hope and promise on the other side of this frustration and despair, you might get through it a little easier. You might get through it a little less painfully, maybe even a little more quickly. Because God always shows up in unexpected ways, in unlooked-for times. God shows up when you least expect it, in ways you can't predict. And when you start to engage God, you start to figure out what God wants and what God is doing. And real quick, you did you? I don't, I'm going to just pause for one second because something happened that has never happened before. A fly flew up my nose while I was preaching at 9:23 on December the 5th. That happened today. That better be the recall for next Sunday. That is the nothing that I say will be as profound as that. That was. I'm going to take a minute. Anyway, we need help on our cleaning team. If you're uh, looking for a way to get plugged in. (laughs) Anyway, God shows up in unexpected ways. Like, I didn't expect that. (laughs) Oh, man. These tired and angry and scared and poor people were looking for God to come and solve all their problems. 
Um, but here's the truth, friends. Christ wants to salvage you. Not solve your problems. Not in the way that you think. Not in the way that probably you, you hope. He comes at you sideways. He comes to you from the inside out. And shows you, shows me that the biggest problem you got is you. The biggest problem I have is me. Why am I tired? Is it somebody else's fault? No. Nobody put a gun to my head and made me cheer till I lost my voice at the greatest football game in the 21st century. Why, why am I angry? Did somebody make me angry? No, anytime you're mad, it's because you let yourself get mad. Why, why are you scared? Is it because somebody else is terrifying you because there's these big bad forces out there? Or is it because you're dwelling on those big bad forces out there? It's because you can't renew your mind. You can't discipline your thoughts. My, my problem is me. Your problem is you. Our problem is you. <laughs> I think back then, they were living in the same kind of uncertainty and frustration that you and I experience now. Although, to be fair, theirs was a lot more intense. And so they're waiting for God to show up and solve all their problems, and he, and he doesn't. They're waiting for fire from heaven. Because they had all those old stories, right, about Elijah looking out at this army of enemies and calling down fire from heaven, and the Lord blew them up. And I imagine for the people alive in first century Palestine, they were hoping God was going to send down fire from heaven and blow up the Romans. He did not. If you've got enemies and you're hoping God's going to blow them up, he will not. Your competitor is not going to go out of business. Your ex is not going to get hit by a bus. Your ex is not going to get hit by a bus. <laughs> if that's on your Christmas list, I'm so sorry. Well, he doesn't, he doesn't, God doesn't solve our problems like that. And they had all these old stories back then. They're, they're waiting for God to show up and, and, and fix their problems because they remember the time that, like, Sinatra came and, and tried to invade and God sent armies um, of, of angels on behalf of the Hebrew people. They're, they're remembering when they were slaves in Egypt. And God sent plagues and then parted the Red Sea. They, they remember all the times that they, well, they were trying to go into the promised land. They, they just marched around a city seven times. And then, and then they shouted and the Lord sent the walls of Jericho crumbling down. I mean, that's what's in their heads. On the day the Romans came... In the years after, they're going, at some point, God, God's going to just fix it, right? Right? Well, he, he did. He does. Just not in the way they thought. Not in the way they thought. Because he comes to fix you. He comes to fix me. Because he can blow up all the people in the world that you don't like. And you're still going to be alive. And you're still going to feel tired and angry, scared and poor. 
because they aren't the problem. You're the problem. I'm the problem. And in order to fix the problem of you, you got to repent. This is why I think John the Baptist was so popular. Remember, Jesus had this cousin named John, right? Both Jesus' mom and Jesus' aunt, they were pregnant at the same time. Bible tells us that when Jesus' mom got together with her sister, their babies leapt in the womb together, which is a quaint little detail, you know, in the midst of all these divine armies and fire from heaven. It's just funny that the Lord wants to tell you about his baby bump. Like, that's, that's funny to me. But okay, it's cool. Jesus and John, they grow up remembering all these stories. Growing up knowing that the Romans were the enemy. Growing up knowing that their Jewish leaders would betray them. Growing up knowing that their religious leaders were harsh and unyielding. Jesus stays in his hometown, becomes a craftsman, apprentices with his father. But John, boy, John takes a different path. Now, we're not exactly sure why. We can guess. I mean, we know that John's father was, was murdered by the Romans. He ran into the temple hiding from them, grabbed the horns of the altar, and there he was murdered. We're not exactly sure what happens next, but when John shows up later on in adulthood, he's dressed peculiarly. Remember what he was wearing? Yeah, camel hair. Yeah, um, I don't think that's nice. He's eating locusts and honey, and some will try and tell you that's a delicacy. I, I need somebody to tell me that more frequently and more authoritatively before I believe it. He comes looking like a, well, to us, a weirdo, but to them, actually, what he looked like was a monk. There were a community of camel hair wearing, locust eating weirdos in a place called Qumran, where in the 20th century we found the Dead Sea Scrolls. And we think that probably John grew up in this Qumran community as an ascetic monk, that he prayed all the time, that he fasted all the time, that he studied the scripture all the time. And then eventually John comes back to his hometown and he starts preaching and proclaiming. Remember what his message was? It's real simple. He says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. I think the people back then we're excited by that message. That's why John was so popular. I mean, Scripture tells us that droves and droves and droves of people came from all over Judea. I mean, from the Mediterranean Sea to the Dead Sea, north and south, people from everywhere were coming to hear this, this weirdo. And I think because he, he had his bona fides in place, I mean, he looked like somebody who really believed what he was saying. And he was fearless. But he'd take on the Romans. He'd take on the Jewish leaders. He'd take on the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the temple. I mean, he was unafraid to tell people they had it wrong. He was ballsy. That was compelling. People came in droves to be baptized by John. A lot of people actually think that, that John the Baptist invented baptism as we know it today. Because prior to John the Baptist, people didn't get baptized but in Qumran, where he grew up, there are these little, um, well, they're almost like wells. You see them all over the place. And what you'd do is you'd be walking along a pathway, and then in the middle of the pathway, there'd be some steps, and you'd go down and get into water up to about your waist, 
and then you'd dip your head down, and then you'd come up the far side of the pathway and dry off. It was a way to ritually purify yourself in all your comings and goings. They might have done it once a day. They might have done it 20 times a day. But the thing that we think of as baptism by immersion largely originated in Qumran and largely was introduced outside of that community, we think, by John the Baptist. So he comes saying, everybody can be holy. Everybody can get clean. Everybody can get right with God if you repent right now. And people loved that because he didn't shame them. He didn't blame them. He just gave them an opportunity to be right with God. Yeah, that's what we try and do here. We know you've got stuff in your life. We know you've got sin. We know you've got hiccups. We know you're inconsistent. We know that you're a hypocrite. Why? Because you're just like us. Nobody has it all figured out all the time. And what we want to do here is what John was doing there, saying, take all your sin, all your garbage, and get rid of it. Start again. Start again. Now, in Luke's gospel, we get lots of, lots of information about John. He says he's proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. But the crowds began to ask him, what should he do? And this is fantastic. Listen to this. He says, what shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. So everybody's saying, what are we supposed to do? He's saying, don't be greedy. Look after each other. Share. And then a group of tax collectors who are not especially popular with religious conservatives, come and they need to be baptized, and they say, teacher, what should he do? And he says, collect no more than you're supposed to. Because the tax collectors were famous for skimming off the top. So John says, look, whatever your sin is, stop. Knock it off. And this is fascinating. Roman soldiers asked him, what should we do? Did you know that Roman soldiers were getting baptized by John? Like if tax collectors were sort of the scumbag gangster types of the day, the Romans were the absolute outright enemy. Remember, it wasn't the day the tax collectors came that all of Jesus' relatives would have been murdered. It was the day the Romans came. Jesus would have grown up not liking the tax collectors, but Jesus would have grown up hearing about how evil the Romans were. John the Baptist would have grown up with a firsthand knowledge that the people who killed his dad were not to be trusted. And yet when the time comes to get right with God, what's John doing? He's making a way. Because there is no sin too gross for God to forgive. Now you think about that, that God is offering grace to oppressors, that God is offering grace to murderers, that God is offering grace to scoundrels and thieves. You think about that when you start feeling bad about your internet search history. You think about that when you start thinking about your broken relationships or the fact that your kids won't talk to you and you feel like the worst person to have ever lived. You remember that those little lies in your head are just that little Somebody smart one time told me that his grace is sufficient for you. And if you are your problem, then good news. 
God's got you. The soldiers come to him and say, what are we supposed to do? And he said, don't extort any money. Don't make threats. Don't make false accusations. Be content with what you make. See, true repentance involves not just a clean heart, but clean hands, too. All these people, they're, they're waiting for God to solve all their problems. And he will. He will. Starting with, with us. So he sends John to get him straight. You got to repent because the kingdom of heaven is near. Now they must have imagined that the kingdom of heaven meant the glory days. The days when Israel had a righteous king. The days when Israel had an established priesthood. The days when the temple sacrifices were, were well and truly honored and offered. They must have imagined that the kingdom of heaven meant they were going to have political independence. They were going to be militarily superior. They were going to have economic abundance. That's what they must have imagined. They never got any of that at all. What if you never get all the things that you imagine God is going to give you? What if instead of you placing your order with God like he's a waiter, you get in step with the Holy Spirit and let him lead. And you follow and say, Lord, what do you got for me? Because if it's from you, I want it. Because I trust you and you're good. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. And they must have imagined all kinds of stuff about what that meant. And guess what? They were wrong. They were wrong. And guess what else? God didn't punish them for it. I mean, they thought if we could just be holy enough, if we could just be prayerful enough, if we could just be repentant enough, then we'd get all the things that we've been waiting for. No. You're never going to be holy enough to manipulate God. That's just not the way it works. Holiness entails getting in step with God, not God getting in line with your hopes and dreams. And even though they were wrong, They got the good news anyway. Like they still, in all their wrongness, and all their ignorance, and all their mistakes, they, they still got the Savior of the world. They still got to be there in, in the next chapter where Jesus shows up and gets baptized with them. I mean, can you imagine if you were there thinking, okay, I'm going to get my life right with God, and then right next to you, God was getting his life right with God? Like, that's confusing, right? But there was never a moment where God punished them for their poor biblical understanding. There was never a moment that God punished them for their failure to accurately perceive prophecy. There was never a moment where God punished them because they had hoped for the wrong thing. Because your father in heaven... He gives good gifts to his children. 
And every good and perfect gift comes from the Father of heavenly lights. Even when you don't deserve it. Even when you don't even know when you're being given that gift. So I read all that and I, I kind of chuckle, you know. Because I know that at some point I'm going to die and stand before the Lord and he's going to go, hey, come on, Davey, let's have a, let's have a chat. And he's going to tell me all the ways in which I got it wrong. And I imagine him sort of, you know, ruffling my hair like a scalawag or something, you know. And Good try, champ. A for effort. And I just love that in the end, it's not how right you are that makes him love you. And so you might be sitting here today going, I'm tired. I'm angry. I'm scared and I'm poor. What am I supposed to do? I don't care about John the Baptist. I don't care about them being wrong. That doesn't help me. That just lets me know I'm in good company. So what am I supposed to do? Well, I actually think they did a couple things right. First, they looked up. Like you might not have all the details about God figured out, but you can go to God without being as smart as God. That's kind of the whole point. So when you're surrounded and quagmired and all this garbage, man, look up. What should you be waiting for? God. Get the who right and let God figure out the how. The second thing that I think they did right is they looked ahead. The kingdom of heaven is near, meaning it's coming soon. Soon. God's going to help you sort some stuff out. And it doesn't help you to look in the past. It doesn't help you to look back. It doesn't help you to look over there to see what this person's doing or what that person's doing. No, no, no. Lift up your eyes, the scripture says. And see, the time is coming soon. So you, you look up and then you look ahead to the future. Because any help from God is going to come in the future. And last but not least, the third thing I think they got right is they looked within. Not because they were the answer to their problems. And not because they had no need for a savior. No, no. They looked in to take a good hard look at themselves and go, all right, there's lots of stuff going on out there that I can't control. What can I control? Clean hands and a pure heart. What can I control? A posture of humility and obedience. What can I control? Accepting responsibility for my mistakes and the messy situations in which I'm in instead of blaming everybody else. What can I control? A mouthful of praise and thanksgiving. So today, however you're feeling, whatever you're waiting for, let me tell you, the answer is up and it's ahead.
Lord Jesus, thank you for all the ways in which you offer and supply grace and mercy to us. Oh God, we need it. We need it in spades. We have so many little battles that we're fighting. So many mistakes that we've made for which we're paying. What we need is you. More of you, more of the time, because it's in you that we live and move and have our being. So help us, Lord, to look to you for help and be grateful when we get it. These things we pray in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.